hope you enjoyed your lunch and your coffee. And can I start by saying, the Lord is with us. His Spirit is here. And every single one of us in this room, every single one of us, have been sent. And we know that primarily because of the nature of our God. We worship a God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Our God is a loving, eternal loving relationship. And he reaches and he builds and he sends. The Father has sent the Son. John writes in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. And the Father and the Son are living in us by His Spirit. John 14 and verse 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And we will come to them and make our home with them. All this I have spoken while I was still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Lord is here in this place, in this room, right now with us. He is here by his Spirit. This is what John Piper says in his, at the start of his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Mission, and I will say sending, is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship does not. So mission and sending begin and end with worship. A God who gathers and sends. And there will be no mission or sending when this age is over and heaven comes. A genuine love and desire and delighting in and for God will result in our desire to display his glory. So worship is the fuel for sending. And this is where we will begin and end uh, this uh, short talk. And in between I want to share four uh, dimensions of what it means for us in MRC to be sent. All of which are connected to an encounter with the risen Lord. And you can see them on your sheets, the words there, the presence, the story, the model, and the relationships. And I'm going to refer to these three passages, and so I just want to paint the picture. I'm not going to read through all of the passages, but let me just paint the picture. The first one you know well, it's that, the, known as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, the disciples are gathered after the resurrection. And what does it say if you go there to, to 28? It says that they worshipped the Lord Jesus, but some doubted. Even in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus, some doubted. I hope that encourages those of you who doubt and fear. And then it tells us, if we read on, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So that's the first encounter. Next one is in Luke. And I'm going to start us on the road to Emmaus. You've got Cleopas, and then you've got the other disciple. Alright, they're part of this group called the Others. You've got the Eleven, and then you've got the Others. Uh, some commentators say that probably this might have been Cleopas's wife. We don't know. It's an argument from silence, but we could imagine that. Cleopas and the Other. And they're on a journey. It's about two hours and ten minutes walk, walking distance. About seven miles. So it's about the distance from Oxford to Abingdon. And it's Resurrection Sunday. And they're depressed. They're depressed because it seems to them that nothing has come of this great Jesus movement. And then they encounter the risen Lord Jesus. Imagine it. Now the scriptures tell us that their hearts burned within them as they listened to this incredible exposition. Imagine it. Two hours, we can assume they're on the way for a bit. Two hours of Bible study with the living word expounding the external word. And yet they didn't recognise him. They were kept from recognising him. We'll come back to that later. And what does he do, Jesus, on the road? He points them to God's story. To all that Moses, that is the law, and the prophets had spoken about him. So it's a, a, a sermon expounding the whole of the Old Testament and pointing to Jesus. And when did they recognise him? They recognised him when they invited him into the house. He was going to carry on. They said, no, come in. And he broke the bread and he gave thanks. That's interesting, isn't it? Come back to that in a moment. And then what's the first thing they do? They go straight back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Because they're very excited. And they join the others. And then again, Jesus meets with them in the power of his risen presence. And what does he do? Once again, he tells them about the story. Verse 46 of chapter 24. He told them, this is what is written. And in verse 27 before that, he had told them, look, this is what Moses and the prophets had said. Now he says to them, this is what is written that the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead. And on the third day, repentance and forgiveness will, of sins will be preached um, in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my, what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have received or you have been clothed with power from on high. That's the second account. Third account. John, chapter 20. Again, Resurrection Sunday. Same thing. Disciples in the, in the upper room, they're gathered. And what does it say? Again, they're frightened. And they've good reason to be frightened. Not frightened by the presence of the Lord. That's another kind of fear that comes a bit later. But they're frightened because it seems to have all gone wrong. Jesus comes amongst them, gives them his peace twice. Shows them his hands and his side. They experience in the presence of Jesus, joy. Joy, and they worship. And that's what worship is. Joy in the presence of God. But almost straight away, what happens? They're sent. Darn, why couldn't that worship have gone on a bit longer? They're sent. And what does Jesus say? 
As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then this incredible authority. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Amazing authority. Keep those three stories in your mind. Four points that that derive from those. Number one. We are sent because we've encountered the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. There is no sending without an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And the amazing thing about these passages is they emphasise that the presence of God will remain with them. They're not being sent on their own. Matthew 28, in the second part of verse 20, And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. We're sent with the promise and in the power of the Holy Spirit. John verse 20, chapter 20 and verse 22, And with that he breathed on and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Luke 24 verse 49, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. We are not on our own. And we can achieve absolutely nothing on our own. But here's the thing. We don't always recognise the presence of Jesus with us. Even when he's on the journey with us. But we shouldn't feel too badly about it. Look at Cleopas and his wife, or the other disciple. Two hours of Bible study with the living word, and yet they didn't recognise him. So it's possible to experience outstanding Bible teaching and yet still not recognise the reality of God's presence speaking to us and teaching us. So what does this mean? Well, as I've hinted at already, recognition of the risen Lord Jesus comes by his initiative. That's one thing. Secondly, Jesus chose to reveal himself to Cleopas and the other disciple at the breaking of bread. And this seems to be a reference to the Last Supper. It seems to be emphasising him presencing himself with his disciples as, he, as they gather in his presence. And somehow, third point, the pattern of the church gathering regularly, which is the pattern that was instituted from then right till, ver- to, to, till now, the gathering of God's people to meet with the risen Lord Jesus, to hear from his word, and then to be sent out is a pattern that has been instituted. So a few questions, just to I pause now before moving on to the next point, to think about in relation to that. me to send you an email with these questions. I was going to print these out and didn't get round to that, so I'm sorry about that, but I can send those to you. Let's move on. Second point, the story. We're sent as part of God's redemption story. Jesus reminds the disciples that all that has happened was accomplished because of what God had intended. All the law and the prophets had spoken. 
It all points to Christ, to God's redemptive purpose in Christ. But the amazing thing about this, and about these accounts, is that they are then drawn into the narrative. Look at that in Luke 24. Christ will suffer, he'll rise from the dead. On the third day, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what the Father has promised, but stay until you receive power from on high. That's that very section at the end of Luke. Then what happens in Luke's second volume, the Acts of the Apostles? He begins in chapter 1 and verse 8, picking up the same thing, recounting the same event, saying, this is how my last volume finished. Salvation accomplished in Christ. Now I'm going to write my second uh, uh, second volume, which is salvation applied through the church. First volume, gospel, salvation accomplished in Christ. Second volume, salvation applied through the church. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, by the end of Acts, they get to Rome. Some people say that's like the doorway to the rest of the nations. But that's the pattern. And this is the flow of the Bible's narrative in the New Testament. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Serial growth of the, of the movement of the gospel from the Jerusalem, where Christ died and rose, to new territories across cultures, across languages, across various other kinds of boundaries. And we see the story unfolding, don't we? We have new centres of Christianity, first in Antioch, then in places like Carthage, and then much, much, much later on in the story, London. And then thinking about the beginning of the modern missionary movement, London was a significant place. Second wave of the modern missionary movement, Cambridge was a, a very significant place. So they become centres. But they also later recede and fall away. And they need to be re-evangelised. I'm studying the church, the nascent church in North Africa, in Algeria. And Carthage in North Africa was a massive centre of Christianity. It is not now. So that is the pattern. We repeatedly get stuck, just like the first disciples in Jerusalem, until about Acts 7, when persecution starts with Stephen, after Stephen's uh, uh, martyrdom. They wanted to stay there in Jerusalem because it was okay. They were having good fellowship. They were meeting in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to move out. Tough. Persecution comes and they're sent out because that was God's intention. Just like committed evangelicals at the start of the evangelical awakening, 1775 to 1825, stuff started to happen in the church. And people started to preach the gospel in, on the streets of London to tackle social issues, etc. It was exciting. But even at that time, committed evangelicals laughed at William Carey when he wrote his tract uh, with a title about 150 words long uh, that begins you know, an inquiry into uh, new means da, 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 for the evangelization of the heathen of India, etc. And they said to him, yes, 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 we know that God is perfectly able to convert the heathen of India, but this passage was written for the first century Uh, apostolic period, it doesn't apply for the rest of history. So there were blind spots. And we also have blind spots and we need to be moved. What about MRC? God has been faithful to, to, to MRC over the years. What is the Jerusalem 
or the Judea and Samaria of our, of our context? That's my question. You know, it's rarely outside persecution that causes the church to go into recession and die. It's normally because we lose sight of the Lord and who he is and who we are and we've been called to be and what the story is, like we were hearing earlier. His redemptive story, our place in it, and how to interpret the story of the people around us, the times in which we live. And MRC, we are drawn into God's redemptive story. And just as an aside, think about it. Cleopas and his wife, or the other disciple, they, they, they had no idea that they were actually going to end up in the canon. Right? They're in Luke's gospel, right? Had they known, I bet you know, the other disciples pretty missed that it hadn't been mentioned by name. That's not fair. Especially if it was his wife. Typical, isn't it? Um, so, we might not be in the canon, but we have been sent as part of God's redemptive story. And the story goes on. And however ordinary, or broken, or doubt-filled, or unglamorous, or simply mundane your journey is, Jesus wants to meet you on that road and draw you into his presence and he wants to bring you together with his faithful and send you back onto that road again but renewed with a new vision. A few questions to think about before we move on to the third point. Thirdly, the model. We are sent in the way of Jesus. In 1967, in the the preparation for the Lausanne Movement Conferences, John Stott, who was a a key figure in that uh, uh, move of evangelicals and and others coming together, thinking about the evangelization of the world, uh, he he attended a conference and he he had the keynote kind of meditation at the beginning of the conference. And the title simply said, The Great Commission. And of course, everyone turned to Matthew 28 at the start, and he opened up and he read from John 20. As Jesus said, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Well, how did the Father send the Son? I want to suggest four things. Number one, the mission. In Luke chapter 4, quoting Uh, Isaiah 61, uh, which Jesus had read out in the synagogue before getting booted out of his own hometown. This is what it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This was and is Jesus' mission. The whole gospel to the whole world. Number two, the attitude. And we need only look as far as Philippians in that beautiful hymn that the Apostle Paul uh, writes about when describing what our attitude should be like as we are sent. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what happens when the way of Christ is followed. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thirdly, the cost. When Jesus shows himself to the disciples in John 20 and in Luke 24, he says, look, this is really me. Look. And that's an indication of what it means to follow him. We are not going to have to die for the sins of the world, but we follow in the way of Christ. Salvation is applied through us and it's made visible in our sacrifice, in our dying to ourselves. Fourthly, and finally on this point, the authority. As I hinted at before, from John 20, um, amazingly, at the end of that passage, Jesus said to them, if you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. We have authority. We have authority. We can use it, or we can choose not to use it. Pause for some questions before the final point. Finally, the relationships. We're sent corporately as disciples to make disciples. The primary command of Jesus in Matthew 28 is to make disciples. The way in which the verse flows is that making disciples is the primary imperative. What is is it to make disciples? What will happen? Well, baptizing, teaching, all of those things. But they are subordinate to the primary command of making disciples. You can baptise and you can teach and not have made disciples. And we can't make disciples if we're not living as disciples. And in our making disciples, our building, we will reach the world. John 13 says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one one another. That's what we were talking about in the last session. What do you think is happening when we sacrificially love and care for our tops and the older members of our congregation? Which, depending on which perspective you come from, we're either doing a good job or not so good a job at. But what happens when people observe that in the wider family, in the social services? What happens when we pour ourselves out in, in love for young mums and dads struggling uh, with, the, with, 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 the, with the weight of parenting? What happens when we welcome international students and give them a home from home? What happens when we open up a local school building and make it a place where the Spirit of the Lord is on His people, where good news is preached to the poor, where prisoners are set free, where refugees and students and the homeless are welcomed? What happens 
when we move closer to all the diversity and ambiguity of East Oxford. The world is watching and we will provoke the questions. Half the battle in our reaching is provoking the questions. Just last week, the chair of the PTA at the local school, who knows absolutely that we're front runners for this building because she has contacts in the PCC and everything else, came up to me and said, you know, what are you planning to do with this, with this building? I said, told her exactly what we were planning to do. And almost with tears in her eyes, she said, that's a massive amount of work. I said, you bet it is. And already to get here, it's been a massive amount. And then she looked at me and she said, Why? Why are you going to those lengths? Well, I don't have time now because my time has almost run out, but that, that is an open door. And there will be those kind of open doors the moment we step into that space. Going back to the passages, all these sendings are corporate. They're corporate. They involve a gathering of God's people. And as I said earlier, this is the pattern. We're gathered in Christ and then we're sent that is who we are. The New Testament has a word for us. Ecclesia Christu or Ecclesia Theu. The gathering of Christ or the gathering of God. Those are the words for church. That's where the word comes from in the New Testament. That is who we are. We are gathered in Christ and the, and the gathering is followed by ascending. It's in our nature. Matthew 28, Luke 24, John 20. We're gathered and sent. And that is why we should consciously send each other back into the world each time we meet. And when I say we meet, I don't just mean on Sundays. I mean in home groups. And I don't just mean in home groups. I mean in triplets. Or when two or three are gathered. That is a gathering. We gather, we worship, we pray, and we send each other back into the world. That's the formula at the end of the Anglican service. Uh, it goes, there's different variations of it, but it goes something like, go in peace to love and serve the Lord, or let us go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. And it happens at the end of most of those services. Now, beyond, we're nonconformists, so we don't do that kind of liturgy, but <laughs> beyond the formula, beyond the formula, we need to send each other back onto those roads that the Lord has placed us on. We're going to be praying in a very short moment for our mission partners. They're on the road as well in northern Iraq, they're on the road in Turkey, they're on the road in Sierra Leone, where God has placed them. But it's also the road of parenting teens, children with strong personalities. We know about that. <laughs> children with special needs. That's the road that God has placed us on. The road of teaching or shaping research in schools and universities. The road of, of legal representation. The road of senior management in, in the university or administration the road of social work or healthcare, the road of study, or even the road of a marriage that has become dry and loveless. God is still with you on that road. Or maybe it's the road of singleness, chosen or not. God is with you on that road and the risen Jesus wants to encounter us on that road so that we gather as his people and then get sent back again onto those roads, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like those early disciples did.